listening to this message online, just want to be upfront that this is not the original recording from Sunday morning. Unfortunately, we had some uh, issues with the recording that was done, and so this is a re-recording of the message uh, on 1 Peter 5. But I trust that as you listen, that uh, the Holy Spirit will continue to speak and uh, will perhaps even speak in new ways um, and in different ways than how he did this past Sunday. I, I think for me, the, the challenge is not to be worried that some of the things that happen spontaneously on the Sunday um, are now lost and, and, and aren't communicated. Um, but that is going to be the case is there is just things that happen uh, during the service and during the preaching of a message that you can't recreate and nor would we want to recreate because they're for that time and for that moment as the Holy Spirit speaks. And so I'm going to trust that as this is preached again for a second time that the Holy Spirit reveals new things in new ways and that if you're listening that you are blessed that you're strengthened, that you're encouraged, and you're edified. And perhaps for some reason that, that we don't know, and I, I don't know, um, the re-recording of this is going to be a great blessing. You might ask, well, why do you feel the need to re-record this? And I would say this, it's because, um, maybe simply because this is the end of a series. And so um, there's something intrinsically important about that. And I think that there is some really... Uh, important and key things in this text that we're going to get into that uh, are for the church today and, and we want to have recorded and we want to have a record of and I trust that those of you who are listening are going to be um, really, really strengthened by it. So with that, um, let's, let's get into this. So over, over the past uh, few decades and probably even more so in the last decade, we're, we're witnessing this rise of an anti-establishment movement in our culture. And at times it seems to be more intense, but the consistent theme in these movements is resistance. And so whether it's the uh, Occupy Wall Street protest that happened in 2011 to the resist movement that has risen up in the U.S. since 2016. There is this desire to resist perceived injustices and oppressions in our society and to, uh, in very uh, vivid and intentional ways, to rise up against them. In Canada, we've even seen this when it comes to indigenous issues and the injustices of the past and this resistance uh, against those who perpetrate perceived inequality and those who infringe on perceived rights. And that is at such an extremely heightened level in our culture. And it likely impacts all of us even more so than we actually realize. And so this, uh, as, we, as, we, as we come to the end of this series in First Peter, I want to talk about another form of resistance that has implications for the entirety of our lives. And, and the title of this series that we've been in in First Peter has been Living Free. And the premise is that the resurrection of Jesus has initiated a living hope 
that we are invited to live out of in our lives. And it's a living hope that enables us to live in the freedom that Jesus offers us. And this, this colors every part of our lives. Everything in our lives is to be touched by the hope that we have in Christ. And so what, what I mean by that is, is I've been thinking about this series and as we've been going through it and, and we've been living in this text, so to speak, over the last couple months, what, what has been impressed upon me is that this theme of living free that, that flows throughout First Peter, it's not meant to just touch certain parts of our lives. It's not meant to just go into certain parts. It's meant to flow into almost like a can of paint, if you will, when it spills and it just begins to flow over everything and it colors everything and it changes everything. And I believe that that's one of the things that we're meant to take away from 1 Peter is that this is for every area of our lives. It covers everything and it changes the way that we see everything because of the resurrection of Jesus and all of the implications for our lives, which are immense. They are, um, you probably can't even put a number on them, and they just continue to flow into our lives as time goes on. And as we've seen throughout First Peter, who we are in Christ and the freedom that Jesus brings into our lives is to impact our identity, it's to impact our relationships, it's meant to impact our vocations, our participation in the church, our witness to others. Every area of your life is to be transformed and is to be shaped by the freedom that you have in Jesus. And so this morning, I want to talk about active resistance in our lives. The reality that opposing our freedom is a real enemy who is actively working to devour and to destroy us, and we must resist. And, you know, we, we can take our freedom for granted. I, I think that we understand this in the natural world when it comes to our democracy in this country, and, and the implication, or sorry, the inclination, I should say, to complacency. Just look at... This, these upcoming elections that we're going to be going through and, and just watch that unless there's a massive shift, there's going to be a massive amount of people who don't vote. There will be very low voter turnout if it follows trends. And the same tech temptation exists when it comes to our spiritual lives. We can take our freedom for granted. And this is where First Peter 5.8 really is meant to hit home for us. It says that we have an enemy, an adversary, the devil, who is prowling around. And Peter gives this picture. He says he's prowling around like a roaring lion. And he is seeking someone to devour. We're, and it's, it says there, it goes on, it says, we are to resist him being firm in our faith. This is what I mean by positive resistance in our lives. And so the question is, how do we do this? And before we look at what 1 Peter 5 says, 
that, that verse in 1 Peter 5.8, it presents us with a claim that is so far removed from what we are conditioned to in this world and everything around us and generally what is, un, what is accepted in our culture. And, and what I mean by what is so far removed <clears throat> is that there is a real spiritual enemy who is working to destroy and devour those who follow Jesus. This means that what this verse is putting forth is that Satan is not imaginary. He is not some cartoon caricature. He is actually a demonic entity that is active and he's predatory right now. And it is this reality that leads Peter to write what he does in chapter 5. That we are to have alert, active, solidified faith that resists the devil and his work in our lives. And so how we actively resist is the question. How do you actively resist? How do you have that type of firm faith in your life? How do we foster that type of faith in our lives? And so we're going to get into this and we're going to read the first few verses here, 1 Peter 5 together. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 to 5 says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when we talk about having firm faith that actively resists the devil, the first point of how we can have this is to receive the gift of leadership. And we're going to get into this. There was a church, though, I, I saw this uh, last week, church in Tennessee, who advertised uh, their upcoming fall lecture series this fall uh, called The Christian Woman. And they advertised sessions that are going to include teaching on being a faithful wife, uh, being a loving mother, and the role of women in the church, among some other topics that they're going to preach on. And, you know, you see the list and you go, those, those are some pretty, those, th you would think those are some good topics that you want to get into and you, you want to uh, talk about. And they're, they're topics that would be in the Bible. The, the one issue that, uh, when, you, when you looked at this thing being advertised that was slightly problematic, however, is that all of the speakers teaching on this are middle-aged men. And, and I'll leave that there except to say that I don't think this is the gift of leadership that Peter was envisioning here. So the question is, how, how do we understand verses 1 to 5 here in 1 Peter 5 in light of 
the surrounding verses and in light of the context of what has been said and, and the letter even as a whole. How do we gain insight into what Peter is writing here? Because if we don't maybe understand some of the context, it might even feel out of place, but I don't, I don't think it is. Peter writes at the end of chapter four of the judgment that begins at the household of God. And it's a sobering reminder for us that the conduct of our lives, how we walk out our faith, matters when we profess faith in Jesus. There is a level of expectation and accountability and we shouldn't shy away from that when it comes to those of us in the church. There is a level of expectation for how we walk out our faith and how we walk out our following of Jesus in this life. And our faith matters. And this faith of ours, Peter writes, is crucial as it pertains to withstanding the presence and the work of the enemy around us and how we remain firm in our walk and in our faith in Jesus. And, and in between this are these verses about leadership and how it is to be exercised and handled within the church. And I, and I believe the reason for that is because leadership in the church is meant to be a gift that helps people remern, remain firm in their faith. There, there is both a calling here to how leaders and elders specifically are to walk and to how the church is to receive that leadership. And Peter, he, he doesn't elevate himself here. He puts himself on the same level as the leaders and, and who he's writing to as leaders. He could have elevated himself as an apostle. This, this after all, this was Peter speaking and writing. And, and interestingly, he doesn't do that, but he, and he also, he doesn't speak to himself being a witness to the resurrection or even the transfiguration, both of which he was a witness to. Rather, he speaks very intentionally of being a witness to the suffering of Jesus. Think about what Peter was doing in those hours when Jesus was suffering, when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was being vilified by the leaders, when Jesus was on his way to just a terrible, gruesome death. It was, those hours were Peter's absolutely worst hours himself. He denied he deserted Jesus, and yet he puts the focus on that intentionally. And I think it should elicit in us the question, why? Why does he do that? It reveals to us that things can be restored in our lives. Peter was restored, but we need to be real about where we are and where we've been. And it, it lays at the very, on the very bedrock of, of leadership, the foundation for those who are going to serve in that. We're to be real, we're to be honest, we're to be transparent, and we're to be aware of our shortcomings. 
And when I, when I think about that, I, I need to recognize that I've made decisions in leadership that I regret and I've walked through situations that I regret and even situations that I still don't understand. And I think as leaders, it should be becoming of us to admit that because that is the reality of walking through it. Leadership in the church is daunting. But there's some clear expectations here for elders and for pastors in the church. And and we need to be clear about these things. We're to care as shepherds for the flock. It says we're to care, we're to lead, we're to tend to. And that presents that picture of how Jesus led and said that he was the shepherd to us. We're to be willing, we're to be eager, we're to lead by example. We're to resist power, we're to resist control, and anything that would get close to deceitful gain. Leaders are to lead with integrity and authenticity. That's, that is challenging. That, that, for all of us in positions of leadership in the church as elders, that is very, very challenging. But it also brings up what is increasingly a difficult discussion in our culture. And that is willingness within the church body to receive church leadership. When, when we talk about rampant individualism in our culture, and it is rampant, and, and, we're, and we're conditioned, all of us are conditioned to accept it. When we talk about that and we recognize what the prevailing views are and the prevailing trajectory in our culture, we realize that these verses, they cut completely against that. These verses, when they, when they come up against where our culture is and where our culture has been, even where our culture is going right now, these verses don't align at all. They, they cut completely against it. Leaders, it says, are to exercise oversight, leading those in their care, walking in the authority that has been given to them. That right there is, is so countercultural. And as I was thinking about that this week, and I, I thought, you know, if I were if I were ever asked this question, and, and I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it now to myself, and so you're gonna you're gonna hear the answer. But if I was asked, what would you want people to know most about leadership? When it comes to some of the inner workings of leadership and how leadership functions in this church, in this particular body, I, I would say this, the depth of, I, I would want you to know, the depth of our love and passion for people and their spiritual health. There, there, is, there is passion for that. And, and as I think back over the years of being in the church, both in leadership and, and when I wasn't in leadership, so maybe when you would call if, if I, I was just a church member or, or an attendee, as I think back over all that time, 
I, I recognize the incredible gift that leadership is to helping people grow and remer- remain firm in their faith. It's so, so important. And our, our need for the church, our need for each other's gifts, and for godly leadership is absolutely necessary to our faith remaining firm. And, and this is being questioned to great length in our society, and I, and I expect that to continue. But the truth of these verses will remain. And the question for us is, what are the applications for our lives? What are the applications for our life together in the church? And how we remain firm in our faith by receiving the gift of leadership. And I think the key is seen here in verse 5. And, and that applies to all of us. Peter says, this is for all of you. We're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And that's the second way to have firm faith that actively resists the devil. Clothe yourself with humility. Let's go on and let's, let's read. Because Paul, or sorry, Peter picks up on this in verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we talk about verses 5 and 6 here, and specifically this, this clothing ourselves with humility and, and this humbling ourselves, I don't think any of us takes this nearly as serious as Scripture does, if I, if I can say that in, in humility. Because I say that because God's opposition to pride is pretty clear. He is in opposition to pride in our lives. It is in humility, it says here, that we receive the grace that we so desperately need, all of us. So another, another way we could talk about having this firm faith in our lives would be pursue freedom from pride in our lives. And, and it, it brings up a question for us, this text. Are we ruthless in examining where pride is present in our lives? Because we are immersed in a culture that celebrates and values and welcomes everything about pride. It, it's, it's part of the very fabric of our culture. We like to have pride operating in us. So, and, and this gets down to very practical levels. So when, when children and, and kids, when, when you think that you're better than someone else at school, that, that's pride. When parents think that secretly their child is better than 
someone else's child, that's pride. And there's so many examples, little examples of that, where we operate and we function and we allow pride to exist in us that is so harmful. And yet we think that pride is harmless. We, we really do. We, we actually think to large extents that, that little bits of pride, as long as it doesn't manifest itself too much and as long as other people don't see it, because a lot of this is about presentation and how we present ourselves with humility, we, we think that's okay. But it creates in us ways of functioning and behaving, it says here, that God will oppose. Now, I'm not saying God is against you. Obviously, it's Romans 8. God is for us. He's not against us. But he will oppose sin in our lives. When there is sin that is operating in us, and when the sin of pride is operating in us, God will oppose that. And the implications are dire according to these verses for us. Because pride, when it exists, it opposes God. God opposing the proud. When it says there that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that's a con- in a continual verb, which means that God keeps opposing that. God keeps giving grace. We want the grace to be kept being given to us, be kept poured out to us, and we don't want pride to be, God to keep opposing pride in us. It's dire if we allow that to exist. Pride seeks to destroy God's might. Humility comes under God's might. We, humility comes under the mighty hand of God. Pride destroys us. We, we, God exalts those are, who are humble. There's a future promise to that. Not just in this right now, in the here and now, but there's this coming, you will be exalted. And that's in humility. And pride ruins our peace in the here and now. So in present in our lives, pride robs us of God's care because we think we can do it on our own. And this is, this is crucial understanding for us because humility comes from casting our anxiety on God. This is where it goes here in the text. We, we hand this over. We're trusting God. Not trying to rely on myself or other things to feel secure. And the truth is that we all look to substitutes in our lives instead of going to the Lord. We are always, the temptation is to look to other things, to other experiences, to material things, to any number of things in the natural world that could act as a substitute for God. And we think somehow, or the temptation is to think that this will give us the peace that we need. And, and what that is, it's going to depend on our personality. It's going to depend on who we are. But we gravitate to distractions and the pursuit of countless things to try and soothe our anxiety. And what this text here says is the only solution is to keep giving all of our anxiety, all of our worry, all of our concern, all those things, keep giving them to the Lord. To have, and so this leads us to the third way that we can have 
firm faith that actively resists the devil. And that is to release your anxiety to God. Or another way we could say it is to pursue freedom from anxiety. This, this process that, uh, that we've been in with uh, purchasing uh, a new house, new property, and uh, in order to do that, we, we have, have had to um, offer conditions on that, and the, and the condition being that, that our house had to sell in order for us to be able to afford the purchase of this new property. And, and you know, it, it didn't used to be that way. Years ago when we've, we've been buying other, when we've bought our previous houses, um, the market was so crazy hot that it was just, it was assumed and expected that, you know, if your house was half sellable, well, you would just offer without conditions and, and it would work out. And it, and it has. But now it's, you have to offer with conditions. It just, you, you, you don't want to put yourself in that position. And so uh, this has all happened for us very, very quickly. And, and putting our house on the market and, and getting it up within a week and, and, um, and now, we've, now we've got an offer on our house, but that offer is subject to these people selling their house and the, 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 the temptation to anxiety would be, well, they need their house to sell in order for our house to sell in order that we can make this purchase work. Well, what happens if they get an offer on their house that is conditional on someone else selling their house and then that person needs their house to sell in order to buy this house and, and the chain gets going. And as I started thinking about this, I can feel the temptation and, and I can feel the anxiety begin to bubble up inside of me. And it's, it, you know what it is? It's the endless what ifs in our lives. And, and there is so many what ifs on any number of situations that we encounter all the time. What if, what if, what if, what if. And handing over our anxiety to the Lord, and, and it can be hourly, it can be minute by minute, depending on the situation, it can be daily. Whatever it is, it is a deliberate act to not allow pride to tell ourselves that we can handle it. The, th- the thing about anxiety is that it has just been accepted as a fact of life by the majority of people, including the church. And, and it, we've, we've just accepted it. It's, it's a part of life. Like, we, we joke about it. We, we actually laugh uneasily about it, but we do. We, we make jokes about it and we, about situations where we're feeling really worried and anxious and we just, we accept it like this is normal. And we accept in many, many ways that anxiety is okay. Clothing ourselves with humility means exactly what that metaphor conjures up for us. Humility covers us and our interactions. And so for those who have nurtured and embraced pride for much of their lives, and I, I can identify with that in so many ways, those of us who have nurtured and embraced pride as a way to protect ourselves, this is rough. This, this brings up so many things to our, the doorstep of our lives and the doorstep of who we are, and it's rough. And because the question is, at the end of the day, the question that it gets down to is, do I trust God? Trust and peace are the opposite 
of anxiety. And, and it's prayer and thanksgiving that Philippians 4 is central to casting our anxiety onto God so that his peace, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The thing about that, all of that, is it's active. It's not passive. It's not apathetic. We have to be mindful of this because we can actually find the logic for spiritual laziness in these verses. Let let me just walk this through for us. We can think this. God is all-powerful. He is mightier than Satan. He cares for us. All true. The logic that can stem from that is that we can then go on living life with this assurance that breeds spiritual passivity and laziness in our lives. And so the question for us is, do we stop at the end of verse 7? Do we draw out our own implications from that verse? We cast our all anxieties on him. He cares for us. Do we draw out our own implications of that that leads us to apathetic faith? Or do we allow scripture to actually form the implications for us? Because what's really important here is there's a clear connection between clothing ourselves with humility, releasing all of our anxiety to God, and the need to be sober-minded and watchful. And that leads us to the fourth way that we can have firm faith that actively resists the devil. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The, The connection to the rest of this verse here, so after this God cares for us and then be sober-minded, that connection there is massive because there's real danger. There, there are real anxieties in life that are really, can be really, really overwhelming at certain times. And we need to deal with these. And the truth is, and what we really, we need to take into the very fiber of our beings is God is the only one that can heal us. And the reason that spiritual passivity, it's, it's such a big deal. And, it, and it's far bigger than most of us realize is that it, it makes all the difference as to whether we actually live out our faith. If it actually becomes that thing that colors and immerses every part of our lives or whether we just live spiritually compartmentalized lives that we aren't really sold out for. That is what's at stake. It's a huge deal. And at stake in that, if we begin to digest and understand the, the totality of this book, at stake is our spiritual freedom and your desire, the level of your desire for more of God's presence and power in your life. So Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The opposite of sober-minded is drunk. And that, that's, so drunk is a distorting of our senses. The opposite of watchful is sleeping, which is a total loss of sense. And so to have, to have sober-mindedness, to be sober-minded is to have clarity. There, there's so many temptations pulling for our attention in our world today. And, and not that they're all bad, 
They're not. There's many things that are pulling for our attention that are not inherently bad. They're not inherently in any way sinful. They can actually be, when handled properly, they can be quite good. But the dangers with any number of things is that if we allow them to, they lead to mental intoxication, being consumed by the things of this world. And so our attention, desires, passions, and thought life can become addicted to things that, that hinder or even pre- prevent spiritual alertness and, or concentration in our lives. And Peter, he, he uses the term sober-minded here three times in his letter. And the first instance that where he uses it is in um, verse 13 of chapter 1. And it's on the back of all the promises of verses 1 to 12, where he talks about the living hope and the inheritance that we have that is imperishable, undefiled, and, and kept in heaven for us. It's never going to change. It's, it's an amazing, amazing inheritance that we're going to. And, and this salvation that we have and, and God's power that is keeping us and keeping us secure and watching over us and, and this salvation that we've received that is just unbelievably glorious and leads to just this incredible joy in our lives. All of that amazing, good, crazy, awesome stuff. On the back of that, he says, therefore, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is coming. Fully set your hope on that. Not partially, not two-thirds, not even 85%. Fully. Now, this grace that he's talking about, Peter says later in, in 1 Peter 4.10 that we are to be stewards of this grace to one another. So we're actually responsible. The stewardship is there's a responsibility to handle this grace to one another and with one another. We're actually, we're, we're blessing and, and encouraging and equipping one another with this. And what this what we realize is when we, when we look at this is that grace doesn't make us passive. Grace makes us stewards. We're called to be active for God's kingdom. In every part of our lives, we're called to be active. So being sober-minded in our lives and having clarity comes as a result of dealing with our anxieties. It's not a small issue. There is a connection, this connection again, that's so massive for our lives. We deal with pride by giving our anxieties to God, releasing them to him, and that produces sober-mindedness and watchfulness in us and in our lives. And Peter says we're to be watchful. Now, he doesn't tell us specifically how, but there's, there's lots of similarities here to Ephesians 6 where it speaks of what it means to be watchful, where Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And what we see here again is that it calls us, all of us, out of passive and apathetic faith. faith. Yes, we rely on God's strength. We rely on his strength. But we're also called to be strong so that we can stand against, that we can resist the schemes of the devil. And we are, we're being provoked by this text. Don't be dull to what is happening around you. In your life, be sharp. 
be watchful of what and aware of what is happening inside of you and around you. Be sharp. Be incredibly sharp in your life. Now you make well, sharp sharp to what? What what's the context? And that's a, a great question for us to to be to ponder. And Peter says, sharp because you have an adversary who wants to devour you. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. He wants to put his jaws into your heart and he wants to put his jaws into your mind. And I was thinking about this in relation to our kids going back to school and going back into a school system that has many qualities but is a secular school system with all sorts of humanistic tentacles in it. And Satan wants to use any number of things and any number of things around us and people around us to get his claws into our hearts and into our minds and begin to twist things. And so that we actually, the gospel is twisted for us. A real life example of this is is Jess and I, we, we know a young adult who grew up in the church with us passionate for Jesus, hungry to learn, committed to the church. I I remember conversations I had with this person where I was just like, I was so blessed by their passion and their their hunger for Jesus at a young age. And and it wasn't surface. They were going into the word. And but this person has there's things that have happened in their lives, hurts that have happened. I don't even know all of them, but I know that, that now they have been taken on this process by a secular counselor of deconstruction of their faith. And not that, that all deconstruction in our lives is bad, but when it begins to rip down your faith and it, be, it leads you to a place of going, there is no God, there is no need for the church, there is, it's all a fallacy. That's the demonic work of Satan. And what it reveals to us, again, hits home for us, it's so important that we live our lives with intention and with watchfulness. Not just allowing life to happen to us year after year. I don't want to be the same person in two years. I don't want to be the same person in five years. When I, in five years, two years, three years, whatever that amount of time is, I want to look back and go, I am going, I've gone deeper into Christ. I'm hungrier for more of Christ than I was two years ago. And I'm, I'm growing and I have grown more. I want that. And what that, again, puts before us is this invitation to living free is active. It's an active engagement with God and with ourselves. Where do I need to be active in the pursuit of what God has for me? And the good news and what these verses that we read reveal is that we can trust God in this no matter what. Whatever comes, whatever is going to hit us in our lives, whatever is coming that we don't know, whatever we're going to walk through, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It says, Peter says, God has dominion over all things. That's really good news because 
when we, we, we need to talk about the devil. We need to talk about him prowling around. We need to talk about the reality of his work and how he wants to deceive and how he wants to devour. But over all of that, we need to hear the incredibly awesome, wonderful affirmation and we need to be reminded God has dominion over all things. It's done. And that is why we can have such assurance in the living hope that we have. So here's, here's the opportunity for application for us. Where does God want to specifically speak to you about active resistance? I want to give you some, some questions for you to work through and, and, and for you to take away. How do you receive the gift of church leadership in your life? Where are you at with pride and clothing yourself with humility? Are there anxieties in your life that you need to release to God? Are you spiritually alert or dull? Are there addictive behaviors that you need to seek healing for? And these questions, I think they put before us the question, are we willing to take these and put them before the Lord and ask him to speak to us about them? The reality is, we have room to grow. We all have room to grow. But it begins with intentional decisions, active resistance against Satan that results in firm faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for these words that bring life and they bring truth to us. And they get down into the deepest parts of us and they invite us to invite you into our lives and into the deepest places in us to bring your healing, to shine your light, and to pour more of your spirit into us. I ask that you do that. Lord, I pray that you would use these words to increase our living hope, to increase our wonder in what you have done for us and in the majesty of who you are. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you and we love you. Amen.